1: Welcome all to
0: this week's Christian Humanist podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. This is our crazy October crossover, y'all. So we have uh, voices on this show that are not here normally. Uh, One you may recall from episodes years back is Todd Pedler, associate professor of, gosh, associate professor of what, physics? Physics.
1: Well, I'm a professor of physics.
0: Oh, full professor.
1: Not, I am now. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I am. Got promoted in in the interim, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's been that long since I, since I introduced you. I should let you take it away from here. Introduce <laughs> yourself, sir.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I am currently a professor of physics here at Luther College. Uh, it's been 16 years now, or I'm in my 16th year, so um, that seems impossible to believe Um, (laughs) you know but uh, uh, yeah so I am uh, also co-host on the book of nature and um, we've got a number of episodes in the can that are uh, on their way out so you'll hear me there Um, I've been doing a slew of shows with uh, Danny on sectarian review too so uh, it seems like I'm I'm a little busy on the network these days
0: Excellent. Sectarian Review is so much fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I I managed to get onto one episode uh with uh Charles Hagney actually. It was it was super fun. I would love to love to go get get back into that mix again. That was
1: a that was an excellent episode too. That was a lot of fun to listen to.
0: Oh yeah, I'm uh the uh the episode uh dear listeners, um if you will indulge uh was Quatermass in the Pit, a BBC serial from the from the 50s. Um, which I'm actually assigning in uh, uh, class I'm teaching in the spring on aliens and classic science fiction so That's awesome. I'm gonna, yeah I'm gonna get some play out of that episode also with us is Jordan Poss who you might have heard well in a variety of different places on the network where will where, where will they hear your dulcet tones Jordan
2: <laughs> I don't know that I have any. Um... <laughs> well, most often I'm on City of Man. We uh, I think Coyle and I have a backlog of like twelve or thirteen episodes of Ancient Asides. I think he's released about five. Um, oh my
0: gosh. I had no idea how more there were gonna be. I'm so excited.
2: Oh yeah, well he uh um I I'm afraid you're about to get past the point where I am most well versed in the history we're talking about, but I, I I feel like I hold my own later. Um yeah, the uh, we he I think he in the country music episode he was talking about how Eventually you'll hear the rest of the episodes and they will have, they'll be released like a year from now and will have been recorded two years prior to that, something like that. So it's, it's funny. Uh, in one episode, I refer to having just come from Cow Appreciation Day at Chick-fil-A and that was released <laughs> right around Cow, uh, Cow Appreciation Day the next year.
1: Hey, well, if you make it a year between recording and, 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 and dropping, then that's fine. It's, it's, oh, the, yeah. it's the ones that are four months ago that are yeah. <laughs> talking about the summer heat coming on, you know, and it's released right. in October.
2: Well, just this morning, I was listening right. to y'all's Star Trek episode, and uh, everybody kept talking about finals coming in right. for, for the spring, <laughs> and today I am trying, you know, busting my tail to try to get my midterms in for the fall, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's good well. stuff. Such nice. is life.
0: Oh, missed that part of your bio, Jordan. On whom are you inflicting midterms, and (laughs) under whose auspices?
2: Uh, I am tolerated at uh, Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina, where I am a history instructor. Excellent. You were talking to half of the department, so.
0: Nice. (laughs) The the, the, the handsomer half?
2: (laughs) Well, the other half is female, so sure.
0: <laughs> nice,
1: excellent. She was a handsome woman. <laughs>
0: but yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 word can be used, yeah, properly. Um. So, dear listeners, uh, as you have probably uh, gathered by now from the other episodes dropping in uh, in the the vast and expanding Christian human uh, Christian humanist radio network, that uh, this year's super crossover event is based on the films of. Alfred Hitchcock yes the the man with the famous silhouette but uh, the film we're looking at today is 1935's The 39 Steps uh, which incidentally is in the public domain and uh, you can find a couple of pretty good high-res versions uh, even on YouTube it's also on Amazon Prime which is where I watch it because the captioning is good but before we turn to the film uh, we should consider where it fits in Hitchcock, in uh, Hitchcock's career, so Todd, what had Hitchcock done leading up to the thirty nine steps, and what would he do shortly thereafter
1: Well, uh one of the things I find really quite fascinating um, about Hitchcock's entry into the realm of film is that uh, after working for about three years in advertising. Uh, he began as a designer of title cards used in silent films for a couple of film studios. Uh, Islington Studios, uh, which I'm not familiar with, um, but also an American company, which was known as Famous Players Lasky Company, which <laughs> would later later become uh, Paramount, ah. uh, which produced five of his, uh, his directed films. So I, I'm not going to dwell on his birth-to-death narrative, uh, but I do have to say that before going into advertising, Hitchcock spent a year in the London County uh, Council School of Marine Engineering and Navigation, where he studied, uh, and I quote, physics and chemistry, took all manner of shop classes, calculated nautical and electrical measurements, and studied the principles of magnetism, force, and motion. Uh, And later on, he said of his time at the school, the worst thing was chemistry. I couldn't get on with that. Melting things in sulfuric acid. Who cares? So... uh, (laughs) as as we as we often say at luther college uh he sought out and found a different vocation um <laughs> and and, uh, and and we all ought to be thankful for it um his entry into film was uh in as i said in in the silent films doing the text cards and in due course of time he was working as an assistant at, uh assistant director um in 1924 he and his wife alma were sent to germany by Gainsborough Pictures, um, the uh, British production company which he was then under contract with, to work on two um Anglo-German films called The Prude's Fall and The Blackguard. And it was while working in um the city of New Babelsburg, I don't that I'm sure in German that's not pronounced that way. Uh <laughs> he was he was taken under the wing of of the expressionist filmmaker F. W. Murnau, who um created the uh, Dracula a- uh, adaptation Nosferatu.
0: Holy crap and, Murnau?
1: Yeah, That's indeed. That's awesome. And he was uh, at the time he was shooting a, a, a silent film called The Last Laugh or Der Letzte Mann. Um and Hitchcock later says about this time he says from Murnau I learned to tell a story without words. Um and it's, it's remarked by one commentator that Murnau had told Hitchcock that what you see on the set does not matter. All that matters is what you see on the screen. And I, and I think we can see that influence in uh, 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 on the visuals in Hitchcock's work. Um, it's evident, really, that he heeded uh, Murnau's advice. Um and just to, to plug one of the most recent shows that I did with uh, Sectarian Review, uh, it's the German Expressionist film, uh, filmmakers, uh, in particular Fritz Lang um, uh, film on Metropolis that we just did an episode on, uh, dropped, dropped in early October, cool. um, I, guess, I guess a couple of weeks ago. And that was a fantastic, uh, fantastically fun show. But it is this, this, this sort of way of filmmaking that the German Expressionists had that you see in early Hitchcock um, uh, a lot of the, 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 set, uh, the set design, a lot of the use of light and dark um, that you see that characterizes Hitchcock and then sort of later film noir, um, I really, really appreciate um, uh, seeing that connection. Um, by 1925, um, back in the UK, he's, he's, he's now vaulted, back, vaulted into the position of a director. Um, and, uh, would do su- nine, nine silent films that we have. There's a couple of, of others that, uh, have been lost. Um, but his first talkie is, is Blackmail, um, uh, where he has joined forces with Charles Bennett, who's a playwright and who would go on to be a screenwriter for, uh, the film we're doing, um, but also, uh, also several others. Um, it, it, it's interesting that blackmail, in fact, uh, starts him down the road, I guess, in in, um, uh, in terms of collaboration with Bennett. Um, and really, we should say something about Bennett, I guess, too, because in the run up to the 39 Steps and beyond, um, Bennett's really important in shaping who Alfred Hitchcock is as a filmmaker. Um, others uh, that you might be uh, aware of, of of Bennett's collaboration. Uh, collaborations with Hitchcock include The Man Who Knew who Knew Too Much, which is right before, um, as well as Secret Agent and Sabotage and one called Young and Innocent, which I don't know of, and then finally The Foreign Correspondent, which is in 1940. Um, and commentators do argue that, that Bennett is really responsible for some of what we call Hitchcock or Hitchcockian, um, some of the tropes cool. that we'll talk about later. Um, really, the span of these six years, I think, is formative, um, from what I understand from my reading, uh, in really giving us the things that we know Hitchcock best for. Um, so, yeah, that's the uh, sort of leading up to and, and, and following on from. Um, and one funny note that I found in the production of this film is that they were so anxious to get it out early in 1935. That Bennett actually accompanied the Hitchcocks on their annual Christ- Christmas vacation to Sam Moritz. Um, <laughs> and they continued continued writing on the script there. So, obviously a very close collaborator. Um, anywho, that's my part.
0: Very cool. Well, one uh, I, I, I don't think any of the other uh, films from that range are being covered in the super-duper crossover event. But uh, one of the ones that's about, I think about four or five years after uh, this one, uh, The Lady Vanishes, is uh, what the Christian Feminist is going to be covering. So if that hasn't dropped yet, I can't remember what order these are going in. But uh, if that hasn't dropped yet, uh, be, be looking for that, dear listeners, because among other things, um, my wife's on it. So <laughs> Katie Grubbs. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and it's a great film. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: A great film. Well, Jordan, you read the book which I didn't assign, um but apparently you did it of your own free will. Um I've kept meaning to do that. Uh what should we know about well, I'm not even sure how to say his name. I would say Bucken.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what
0: what what should we know about John Bucken and without spoiling too much, uh what major kinds of differences do you find between the book and the
2: film? Uh Well, uh, this is kind of funny because I actually came to the film through the book. Uh, I read I first read the book ah. 10, 11 years ago, something like that, uh, just because it was a classic sort of espionage thriller. And the copy that I got a hold of had a foreword by uh, Sir John Keegan, uh, the late, great British military historian, which is really, really informative. Cool. It's the uh, – you've heard me – blah, blah, blah about Penguin Classics on Coyle's podcast plenty. It's the Penguin Classics edition of this. It's pretty good. Uh, (laughs) It's also really short. Uh, This edition's like 113 pages, um, which I think uh, lends itself very well to film adaptation because it maintains this breakneck pace of uh, kind of travel and incident that Hitchcock translates pretty well, even though a uh, a lot of the specific details of the book are up for grabs, as we'll see. Oh, as for Buchan, um, yeah, I didn't know how to pronounce that until like a couple weeks ago either, um, especially since I knew a lot of Buchanans, uh, so I always wanted to call him John Buchan. Um, the, thing, the main thing you need to know about John Buchan is that he is just super Scottish. Uh, he is, I mean, his, his father was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland. He was born in Fife, uh, reared mostly and educated mostly in Glasgow. Um before getting a degree in classics at Oxford, where I just found out today he apparently knew Hilaire Belloc giving him a little Chesterton connection, huh. which I find cool um and again he's he's like the poster boy for like the Max Weber Protestant work ethic thing he's this super hard working devoutly religious, morally upright big big believer in the empire um so he's he's he would probably be too serious and too sincere to be taken seriously by a lot of modern people, uh, but he's 100% genuine about uh, about himself, about what he believes in. Um, even during college, he started writing and tried to support himself on that writing, he and his wife and family, uh, and he did okay. Uh, he did a lot of kind of freelance journalism, uh, wrote some short stories, wrote a couple of novels, uh, and the classics influence, and also his kind of religious interests are already coming through. Uh, one of his first big novels is called *Prester John, um, you know, kind of evoking that old, Medieval concept of, you know, that far-off Christian king somewhere in the east. Uh, but the 39 Steps is what put him on the map. Uh, that was a big bestseller. Uh, came out in 1915, and I believe he began writing it during a vacation in August of 1914, which is, you know, Barbara Tuckman, The Guns of August, when Europe starts blowing itself up. Um, that That's going to lead to one of the big differences that I see between the book and the film, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so, eventually, years go by, the same year that the film comes out, he's actually elevated to the peerage, uh, becomes the first Baron Tweedsmuir, uh, and this is in order to give him a seat in the House of Lords and uh, allow him to be appointed Governor General of Canada, um, and it, which is what he did for the last five years of his life before he died in 1940. Um if you look up his Wikipedia page, is really fantastic. Photo of him wearing a Canadian Indian War bonnet with just this incredibly dour Scottish face of his. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, in reflecting on the book, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> um, that's fantastic. I mean, you can fantastic. see this. You can see him in a kilt, right, or a powdered wig, or like a you know John Knox outfit. Uh, but instead, he's you know <laughs> dressed up like Sitting Bull. Anyway, uh, reflecting on Buchan's characters uh, throughout his career, because uh, this is just the first of several Hannay novels. Um, I, I, this is the only one I've read. Uh, again, I read it like 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, read it a couple of weeks ago just to kind of refamiliarize myself with it because I always like to compare book to film. Uh, Keegan writes in the introduction that the Buchan firmament is peopled by characters who are instinctively patriotic, romantically unselfish, and ready at a moment's notice to abandon everyday duty to do service to the cause, which, incidentally, is a pretty darn good description of Buchan himself. Um, so, 39 Steps comes out in 1915. Uh, by the end of the war, he is actually running the British propaganda machine, um, and has already produced another Hannay novel in which Hannay... I'm i am sketchy on the details, but, I, but I'm eventually going to read it. Hannay travels across Europe during the war, somehow thwarting like a hunnic plot to raise muslims in the ottoman empire and jihad against the british empire something like that
0: was that green mantle
2: yeah yeah i've, I've got okay. a copy i haven't gotten around to reading it it's considerably longer than the 39 steps and i think um since the war well, I'll, I'll go ahead and start talking about some of the differences um one of the differences i see is that the movie kind of leaves exactly who the enemy is a little bit ambiguous. It's really clear in hindsight, because four years later, Europe starts blowing itself up again. Um, But in the book, it's clearly the Krauts. I mean, they they speak German to each other. Uh, They refer offhandedly to the, you know, getting intelligence to the Marine Amt, which is the, you know, naval service of the uh, German Empire, things like that. Um, Beyond that, though, there's lots and lots of very small plot details and incidents that are either left out or tweaked. Um, there's also an element of uh, I can't think of a better way to say this, but kind of sexual danger introduced as well. Uh, the woman who goes home with Hanne at the beginning of the film in the book is a journalist who's on who is fleeing from the Germans. Um, so Hanne, uh, who is a much uh, much more fully developed character in the book, and who is also uh, South African or Rhodesian rather than Canadian, uh, which
1: yeah, I was going to ask you that question. So that's yeah. That's a nod to his recent being ra- recently being raised to the position in Canada, right? I, I
2: think so, and but, I think it's also okay. a attempt, because I know that uh, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much was a really big success in Britain, and I think maybe outside Britain a little bit for Hitchcock. So The 39 Steps, uh, the studio intentionally positioned to try to be sort of a breakout hit and kind of get into the American market with it. So a Canadian character is going to be... You know, even if he's not American, he'll be at least more appealing than a Rhodesian, you know, whatever that is to New Yorkers. Um, So this, uh, you know, this journalist, you know, stops off Hannah just being this kind of good-natured chum who is also incredibly bored in London. Uh, In the novel, he's already an adventurer. He's in his late 30s and has spent most of his life gallivanting around the empire, getting into all kinds of scrapes and getting involved in adventures. Um, In the movie, he's a little bit more of a kind of We'll talk about this more later, but a little bit more of a kind of standard Hitchcock everyman. Um, just in a little bit over his head, maybe not super comfortable with adventure, but manages to rise to the challenge even while looking somewhat foolish doing it sometimes. Uh the Hannay of the book is more in the vein of a, like a Presbyterian Indiana Jones, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs>
0: can, I never uh, knew that I wanted that, but I do.
2: It's it's worth reading. Uh I will I will caution anybody, uh just reading around, like, Goodreads and Amazon.com uh, a little bit, it seems like people who go to the novel from the movie hate it. Uh, so go in knowing it's going to be considerably different. Um, primarily, uh, the plot is more or less the same. You know, guy in London accused of murder, fleeing both from the cops and from what is clearly the Germans. Um, the uh, A lot of the incidents are changed, though, and Hannay himself is a somewhat different um, less charming character, um, furthermore, probably the biggest uh, change there's no love interest in the book uh, again, I don't want to spoil anything for later, but throughout the book, until roughly the three quarter mark, Hannay is by himself. Uh, he occasionally gets help from like a lone Scottish farmer, uh, but there's no there's virtually no female characters at all. Um, the biggest differences to me though are again tonal. Uh, Hannay is kind of like sincerely invested in the british empire which is really what's driving him uh not just to go into hiding because he's somehow got to navigate this crisis where everybody's trying to kill him but he still needs to find some way to safely come out of hiding to help the empire defend itself if that makes sense uh in the movie you never really get him coming back and helping the authorities out uh and i think that goes back to something that's pretty famous about hitchcock which is his kind of ambivalent attitude toward authority figures um there's that really famous incident from when he was a kid when his dad sent him to the local police station with a note telling the desk sergeant to just lock him up for five minutes with no explanation, which, you know, if you know that, you know, every time the police show up in a Hitchcock film, they are as sinister as the villains, if not more so. Uh, think of the state trooper in Psycho, right? So uh, there's this <laughs> fundamental trust in authority in Bucken's novel that is just not there. In Hitchcock, Hannay has to resolve the issue himself before he can actually kind of bring the authorities in on it. Um, uh, David, I know you haven't read it. Todd, have you read the book?
1: I have not, but I'm going to as soon as we're done. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you could probably,
2: (laughs) if you're a fast reader, faster than me, you could probably plow through it in an hour, hour and a half. Uh, Hmm. I think it's worth reading. It is, again, for for a lot of people who come to it from the movie, it's going to be a letdown. Uh, But I enjoy it, and I especially enjoy kind of the me being me kind of the historical context of it uh leading up to world war one but again i don't want to step on uh i don't want to step on our next topic of discussion uh anything else y'all would chip into that any observations
0: just a couple um the i haven't read the book either but um it's part of a genre that i have read some examples of uh the genre of uh the the invasion novel um, coming into the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th, an awful lot of retired British officers um, were concerned about uh, what they saw as the laxity of Britain's mm-hmm. ability to defend herself. And so um, there was a, a market of novels in which uh, v- various enemies, but particularly Germans... Mm-hmm are just sort of waiting in the wings to storm across the channel and come in from all sorts of different directions in the island to take over. Um, like
2: Riddle of the Sands and that kind of thing.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, to, to the point where in, I think it's 1911 or 1912, um, it's right around in there, P.G. Wodehouse actually wrote a parody <clears> invasion novel called Swoop, in which Britain is invaded by, I think 10 or 12 different armies simultaneously. <laughs> that's um, Woodhouse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it becomes very unfunny about three years later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the invasion novel, so so when the book is, comes out, that's it's a trope. Mm-hmm. Um, when the movie comes out, the, the fictional trope had become... Uh, a, a, a memory and a, a foreboding, um, but the other thing is that uh, one one of the fans and I, I did not know this until recently, uh, a fan of John Bucken uh, was uh, J.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, he he loved him some Bucken, and one novel in particular called Hunting Tower has sometimes been connected to the opening premise of The Hobbit. Hmm. Because a, a bourgeois um, shopkeeper in Glasgow um, uh, s- sells his shop and sets out an, on retirement uh, a, in in a walking tour, he decides that he's interested in an adventure, and it's uh, about as close to the beginning of the Hobbit as 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 you could get. Interesting. The, this, yeah, he, he, he feels Tookish uh, to to put it in Tolkien in Tolkien's <laughs> term anyway uh yeah i i have i've been wanting a good reason to dig to to make myself dig into buckin and i think you've given me that
2: I'd i'd say this is a good entry point because it is really short and i haven't read any of his other novels yet i keep meaning to as well uh but it's it's and we'll talk about this more later but it's interesting because it is a product of its time but i don't think without buckin you know you connected it to the hobbit uh without buckin you wouldn't get some of the other highs and lows of this kind of thriller, what uh, Bucking himself called a shocker. Uh, I don't think without him you'd have like Ian Fleming or John Le Carre, or in the next generation mm-hmm. like a Tom Clancy. Mm.
1: Huh. That, now my understanding is there's not a Mister Memory character, right? No. Yeah. That's also a. Yeah, that's clearly a device that was introduced, mm. necessary one, I guess. To, yeah, and the
2: meaning of the Thirty Nine steps. steps itself is completely different too. There are there are thirty nine literal steps in a staircase that hannah is looking for at one point um Mm. so some Mm. of the you know it's it's considerably different but i think the changes the changes work for the film um
1: well yeah i mean hitchcock writes uh so there's there is a um a passage and i don't remember where it is from where he says basically that buckins book would be unbelievable on screen Mm -hmm. And so you know he and Bennett had really to stitch things together in such a way as to make it uh make it work um uh, mm-hmm. which you you know which you couldn't do by doing more straightforward ad- adaptation of the book
2: right, and Buchan was aware of that too i really <laughs> I really find his introduction adorable uh yeah, he in the dedication page he calls he defines the shocker or what we would call a thriller uh the romance where the incidents defy the probabilities and march just inside the borders of the possible which which I think is a pretty adorable definition. That's good. Uh, yeah. Really workable, but you can get away with a lot more in a book than I think you can, to your point on film. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Agreed. Well, just to sort of follow up on our attempt to put this into context and already sort of alluded to this, but the novel, like we've said, was published in 1915, uh, but the movie was first, uh, the movie was screened in 1935. So how does this tale that's told in the very in the early days of World War I uh, come across when retold only a few years out from World War II? Todd? Uh,
1: yeah, so I, this is really a very interesting question um, for a number of reasons. Um, the story is told, as I would argue, by two men, um the story of the film rather um who undoubtedly were touched by the events of World War 1 um you know the first being Alfred Hitchcock born in 1899 is a teenager on on Friday the 13th um no <laughs> less um and lived through uh the war as as a teenager um but the second you know the second is Charles Bennett who is 11 days Hitchcock senior um and who enlisted illegally in nineteen fifteen as a member of the Royal facility uh and fought at the Battle of the Somme mm. uh so both of the creative wow. talents both the creative talents are indelibly marked uh by World War one although in you know for obvious uh, obvious reasons given those stories uh for different reasons or different in, in different ways um we often think of London and its bombing in uh, the early stages of World War Two. Well, throughout, really, but uh, the early stages, particularly of World War Two. But I think it's often forgotten that England and indeed even London were bombed in World War One. Right. Um, the you know the first aerial threat comes from the Zeppelins. Mm-hmm. Um, And the first raids are are in, you know, 1915 in Norfolk and later in the year, in the fall of the year, um, to London. And we should stick this in the, just for the purpose of context and just because I think it's interesting. I found a series of reflections by schoolchildren in London writing on the second bombing of London in 1915. Wow! Um, Little essays, you know, which really set a very interesting tone. For the way that Londoners would have felt, um, yeah, there's a there's a relatively famous extract from a kid who um, it witnessed uh, in his immediate vicinity the shooting down of a Zeppelin and mm. the dying of the Zeppelin crew um, wow. over in Enfield, which is a uh, you know in the western um, the western villages and suburbs of of London. Um but I think there, there's a there's an element where where I think this might be connected to at least some aspect of 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 the story. The zeppelins you know flying by at ten thousand feet they turn off their engines and just float, so they drift in silently to carry out their attacks, and you only hear the bomb when it hits um, The novels published in October of nineteen fifteen and, and so the idea of silent aerial warfare. Um, was oh, it was it was in the air? That's where my <laughs> phrase went, and that's bad. Um, I, I was thinking
0: but, you might say something like a hot topic, which is also bad <laughs> for other reasons.
1: <laughs> These are the kinds of things that my students love about me. <laughs> uh, the phrase that comes to mind, um, and then I hesitate, and of course, that's the the the, the killer. Um, the, so the movie comes out in 1935. So 1935, we've got Mussolini, who's well into his second decade in power in Italy. We've got Hitler, who's two years in uh, uh, as chancellor. Um, and there are beginning to be rumblings of a new war or new concerns of power of, uh, among the fascists um, in uh, on the continent. If you listen in particular to the speech, and this is really a crucial moment in the film, the speech that Hannay gives when he's thrust mistakenly into a political (laughs) rally as a speaker, um, one of the funnier moments, but also, you know, a moment where, where you see, uh, Hitchcock sort of pausing the film and saying, you know, oh, here's a bit of, here's a bit of my perspective. Um, uh, this, this speech really concerns a very brief one, but concerns peace and brotherhood of nations and, and what have you. Um, that's also in the atmosphere in Britain. Um, you know, 1936, we see Neville Chamberlain returning with uh, Peace in Our Time, you know, waving the document, uh, ill-advised as it was. But at the center of the film, we see Hitchcock making this rhetorical move that's in step with some of the ideas that are, you know, that are, that are present in Britain at the time. Um, I, I think so one of the one of the anxieties of the age that we see um, that is building on a similar period twenty years previous in Buchan's novel um, we see this concern about the spy the hidden spy the one you don't know is right in in your midst um given what's going on on the continent um, and the intrigues that were are seen in Britain and elsewhere um uh, I, you know, I think there's no, there's no question that we're, we're, we're playing with these, we're playing with these ideas. Um, I dug up a little bit more about things that are going on in Britain um, in the 1930s. Uh, you have the foundation of the British Union of Fascists in 1932. Um, membership by 1934 was some 50,000. You have rallies Of of literally thousands who are sympathetic to the uh, Mussolini and Hitler, uh, you know their moves that are going on on the continent. This is all happening on the homeland, you know, in the homeland. So, in nineteen fifteen, you have Edwardian fears of the loss of empire. In nineteen thirty five, you've got the story brought into the present um with uh concerns about national survival and and what's going on on both sides. So I think there's there's some really interesting deep connections here um between these two time periods. Um something a little bit more, a little bit uh, just fascinating that I found. So the novel is written while Buchan is is convalescing um uh on the Kent coast in an estate there. Um you have um, this 39 steps plot device. Well, it turns out that there is a connection to the number of steps that lead down to the sea from a ho- this house um, where Buchan is staying or near where Buchan is staying, um, number one. Um, number two, you have um, later on, 1934, 1930 or so uh one of these fascists who is a well to do very well dressed very well mannered uh gentleman who takes up residence at this very house um dude i don't i don't know about the connections any more than these you know these perhaps they're just coincidental facts but i wouldn't be surprised um if in the midst of this fear you have this you know this, this well-mannered claimed to be English, but was a, a, a Nazi. His name was Tester, um, uh, who very much looks the part of uh, the gentleman that we see in the, in the film as well. So um, mm-hmm. lots of very interesting, uh, perhaps uh, coincidental, but I don't think so <laughs> <laughs> points uh, in, in the way that the film gets adapted. Um, to play to the concerns of the age.
0: Yeah, I really like the way you're uh, you're setting it in that context. It brings out the the ambivalence of uh, especially Hane towards the um, the p- the political or military repercussions of all of this. Mm. Uh, especially in that speech that you cited, he really just wants to be left alone. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Um, but uh but if if pushed if pushed he will he will defend himself he will act hmm. he will eventually act decisively but he really 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 doesn't want to pick trouble uh you know he he, he doesn't want to pick a fight he doesn't want to uh, he doesn't want that so you can kind of see the may maybe if if we're pursuing this the symbolism that maybe, maybe he is this this British public uh, or Canadian in this case, but but representing this British everyman who's really doesn't want another great war because that last one it didn't end all wars, that was a lie. Right. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, we've got we've got you know actual Nazis marching in our streets, and what if they come for us?
1: <laughs>
0: Will we stand?
1: And I wonder whether the connection here is part—I mean, there there are, of course, other causes, but I wonder if the real present um, danger—clear in (laughs) present danger, (laughs) in fact—I wonder whether this is why it played to packed houses in Britain, but really failed in the U.S.
0: Hmm. Huh. Because the U.S. really, really, really didn't want to be pried out of her shell.
1: Real. Uh, well, and we didn't have the fascist marching, marching in the streets, right? I mean, we didn't have this. This 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 moment was just not the same, right?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it would take it would take Pearl Harbor to make that politically doable in the mind of the public. Yeah. Well. We we've already sort of uh, hinted at this. In fact, I th- I think you uh you made the, you made a reference to this, Jordan, when you were talking about Bucken's own introduction. Um, and it seems like maybe some a feature from the novel that shows up in the film. Uh, this film is uh very self aware, very wryly self aware, and it's one of my favorite things about it. So if you could keep pursuing that vein, Jordan, where is this film in excellent archetype of the espionage thriller and where does its plot really depend on its own consciousness of being spectacular and unlikely
2: uh, i'll take the first part of that first really quick because i i really enjoy spy thrillers and you know i mentioned um john le Carre and uh ian fleming both earlier who i think both owe a lot to buckin uh just in making right, their form right. of stories possible uh and as different as le Carre and fleming are i think they are you know, in that, uh, it, you know, they, they descend from Buchan. So some of the archetypes that I see, at least uh, in terms of the film, uh, which also I think sets a lot of the standards for similar spy films, uh, really basics. You got somebody trying to steal secret information. Um, it, I, I actually kind of find it interesting. And th- this is a really good example of a hitchcock MacGuffin, right? Just this, this thing. It doesn't really matter right. what it is, but it drives the plot. Uh, I actually find it, having watched it several times now, Almost find it disappointing when Mr. Emery actually starts reciting the information. Like, oh, that was it. You know, I mean, it's
1: <laughs> it, you know,
2: it's it's important uh, information, particularly if you're in the air ministry, right? Which is a new update. Uh, there's less about the navy and more about airplanes in the film. Um, but uh, you know, after after Hannah has been running hither and thither and yawn through through the heather in Scotland, uh, finding out that you know it's just like the specs of a particular kind of engine, you know. Kind of highlights, again, a little bit about the uh, how ultimately unimportant a MacGuffin is, uh, as long as it's there. Uh, that also brings, you know, uh, a lot of spy thrillers have, you know, someone either gone rogue or a man on the run. Um, I think of it like Jason Bourne, right, who's constantly on the move. Uh, the, right. the movie starts in London, goes to Scotland, bounces back to London at the end, and is nicely bookended in that theater. Uh, you even get, and I noticed this watching it again last night you even get that little kind of Jason Bourne trademark where the guy's like crossing the street and a bus goes by and he's gone. Uh, when <laughs> when Hannah gets off, when Hannah gets off the train on the uh, Firth of Forth bridge, uh, you know, he's hiding behind a pillar at one point and Then the camera pans over when it comes back, he's gone, which I think is, has got to be the prototype of that kind of move. Um, you've also got this interesting balance of international danger with personal danger. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, uh, what are, Fairly clearly supposed to be the Nazis, even though they're all pretty posh English types. Uh, they're they're presented as a threat. I mean, they're, they're a real threat, um, regardless of, you know, kind of the broader uh, politics and that desire for peace. So, you know, if you can simply steal back the information they want, we can preserve peace, even though there's these people actively trying to seek war out there. Uh, but it's balanced, again, with personal danger, and I think you see that in a lot of spy films and spy books since then uh the the kind of broader international plot only f- feels like it matters as much as you care about the character right um right. So, i mean who cares about the cia's weird hitman programs you know unless you actually care about jason bourne just to go back to that example um, same with james bond in fleming's novels bond is like just a wreck of a human being eventually which actually lends the you know villain of the week plots a little bit more weight uh, but the biggest archetype, I think, is just that general sense of paranoia. Um, just everyday things take on, you know, kind of sinister overtones or become threatening. So in this film, you know, ordinary policemen just doing their jobs are suddenly a existential threat. Uh, you look out the window and seeing a man in a phone booth is suddenly terrifying. Um, right. I mean, th- this is, a, I think, one of the key elements that gives a spy film its its atmosphere. Uh, A few weeks ago, I watched, what was it? Three Days of the Condor, Robert Duvall, or not Robert Duvall, Robert Mm -hmm. Redford. And the whole movie basically runs on that premise is that all these ordinary seeming things are really part of a larger and vaster and much more terrifying reality that is hidden there where you can barely see it. Um, As for the, uh, I I think it is, yeah, a a very, very self-conscious, and like a lot of Hitchcock heroes, Hannay never never seems to take his predicament too seriously uh he can still rib the heroine right he can still joke about stuff um uh i do i was kind of unclear like what what maybe do you mean about uh elements of the plot really depending on this self-consciousness like do you have an example in mind oh i'm thinking of uh
0: the the ways uh, every every character when they are presented with the plot mm-hmm um, their first reaction is, "Well, that's just a ridiculous fairy yeah. tale." Pull the other one.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's right? that's definitely the case with is uh, it Pamela? Uh, the girl yeah, oh yeah. He first Pamela runs does it. Yeah, he first runs into her on the train and <laughs> doesn't have a minute to give him on this story. She immediately turns him over to the police, uh, and then runs into him again at the political rally later, and spends the whole time there together until the very end. Trying to turn him back in because she doesn't believe it. So, so yeah, it. Uh, <laughs> I, I also appreciate the fact that. Um, I, I think this is one of the wry things that I enjoyed was how how blasé the people who are actually in on it are about it. So when when he actually reaches the hideout of this spy in the Highlands, the dude pulls a gun on him, and they're standing there talking, and the guy's wife walks in and just wants to ask him about lunch arrangements, and she seems totally nonplussed (laughs) that her husband is about to shoot a man in the study which (laughs) i i thought was hilarious um which which again is already playing a little bit with those tropes and not not taking them too seriously but making them feel maybe a little bit more real as a result
0: right right uh i'm thinking too of uh well, Hane's initial uh, initial reaction to Annabella, the spy who mm-hmm. you know crashes his life, um, he doesn't believe her. Right? Uh, he thinks she's you know, a prostitute not... or something. Right? <laughs> right? Not until uh. she, not until she gets you know stabbed in his you know in his apartment mm-hmm. you know by by invisible invisible people apparently <laughs> um, does it does it all come true and, and when he's trying to get out of the apartment the milkman comes and he's like yeah I'm a spy and there's a dead woman yes. upstairs and I gotta get out
1: Yeah, it's yeah. One of my and he's
0: like, like okay alright okay okay no it's not that there's a woman on the first floor who's married and I'm having an affair with her and I just want to get out and the milkman's response is well why didn't you just say so and <laughs> <laughs> helps him get away
1: you know, yeah.
2: the milkman is it, one of the it, things that comes straight from the book. Incidentally, um, really, yeah. Which oh, you know, that's awesome. Which seems like maybe the most Hitchcockian thing in the movie. And I think they spice up the the dialogue a little bit, uh, but that's all right there in the book. That's great.
1: It's a it's a milkman in the book. Yeah. Okay, because th- so there's a there must be another escape. Uh, scene that occurs in the book with, with uh, like stone masons or something yeah, he, like this? Because I read something somewhere. Okay.
2: Yeah, he he at one point pretends – the book plays out over several weeks uh, where this is like yeah. a period of maybe 72 hours in the movie. Uh, there's a point right. in the book where he pretends to like he, – he accidentally invents method acting by uh, convincing yeah. himself <laughs> that he is in fact a Scottish road repairman. Uh, so he's like <laughs> out – assiduously fixing potholes in the highlands in order to escape the spies, um, okay. which is <laughs> pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's, awesome. uh, th- that's that's what comes to mind with me anyway. And um, this is maybe one of the most humorous Hitchcock films I've seen. Uh, even even the ones where, with Cary Grant, who I feel like is maybe one of Hitchcock's sillier protagonists, generally. Uh, even those don't quite have as many Laughs in it, like uh, um, I don't. I don't want to step on Todd's next question, but I really enjoy the underwear salesman on the train. I mean, <laughs> that, that that would not be in a Jason Bourne movie, right? Um, <laughs> you don't get time no. out to listen to these guys joke about gir- uh, girdles.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of gentlemen joking about girdles um that's a a pretty doesn't happen often on this podcast does it (laughs) no no this is uh might be a first i'm not sure but um you you never know what we're going to get up to over uh, in the chp um we should we should praise the performances in this film uh and we'll we'll let you we'll let you go first todd who stands out as particularly excellent and uh are there minor players who deserve a major mention like the like the milkman? Or are there any performances that you think are especially weak?
1: Um so I, I I wrestled with this. I was trying to come up with, you know, what well let's see. Should we talk about Hannah? No, let's not talk about should we talk about Pamela? I, I do think Pamela's a fantastic character, but I actually yeah. I think I, I, I think I enjoy uh so I'll I'll let one of you two pick you know pick pick them out um i actually think if there's a character to be had it's the uh it's the combination of the two but we 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 should talk about that later but i like the old gentleman i mean this 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 spy i mean i think his oh, when yeah. he is found out when he you know when he is uh happened upon by hane that scene i think is fantastic uh i think his yeah. his deadpan uh delivery of of uh oh you know uh it, you know i believe you i believe of course you know and it'll be just as easy when you know for for me to convince uh them of your innocence the police of your innocence as you have me that that scene is just remarkable um and and so you know his performance i think uh definitely is one that that uh, that i find most uh, most enjoyable and yeah the minor characters uh if I had to choose one, it would probably it would probably be be the uh, underwear salesman. But uh, I don't don't let this get out too too publicly that that was my favorite uh, minor character.
0: Oh, the way he, that he reacts when he looks at the newspaper and sees that the advertisement that's <laughs> undercutting his yeah. prices that yeah that yeah. is excellent.
2: Yeah, reading about this murder. Oh, can you believe they're advertising? Like. <laughs> <laughs> But have
0: you seen the girls? <laughs> yes, yeah.
2: and the whole interplay with the Catholic priest across the aisle. Right, uh, oh, right. that's like a yeah. plot. That's yeah. like a subplot within that subplot, which I, I, right. it's hilarious. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and the funny thing is, I mean, for Hane, he's so paranoid right now, and like every every all of his relationships with everyone around him even just in his body language and his facial expressions he's so he's so incredibly just pent up in that moment and they keep exchanging meaningful glances and all the rest of that and it has not and they're not in on some plot and they don't suspect him of murder they just they're just talking about dirty stuff in front of a priest and they think it's funny
2: yeah yeah they're even telling a limerick at the end which uh, right, right? I didn't realize as a kid. Limericks <laughs> are almost in almost always dirty.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now you asked about performances that fall flat, and I you know, I I think I would like to have seen um a little more out of the Crofter couple. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Um I, I i do i do think the uh the crofter himself was played well um but i i just i I, f- I feel like that scene could have had more life in it you know especially as he um you know he he looks at his wife and Hanne and they're um it Suspicious looking, I guess, across the dinner table. And then he, you know, makes an excuse to go outside and he goes around the corner to go look in, uh, which is another Hitchcock trope, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the peering through the window and what have you. Um, I, I I guess I would have li- – that, that scene it was good, but I think it could have been much better.
0: I mean, but he's about as dour Scotsman as you could get. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, no.
1: <laughs> I mean – He's
0: that, just that, the dourist. That, that, that,
2: <laughs> the, the thing that finally gets his goat is that his wife gave away his hymn book,
1: <laughs> yes, right? And right. his coat. <laughs> and his... Yes, indeed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, and well, in the, the degree that which she is uh, appalled that her husband would give him up to the police after uh, after her husband has taken Hannah's money. Um, his mm-hmm. his his greed. I mean, even even if it is kind of an even if it is an ethnic stereotype, at least it's you know, is is are they in the novel? Is this a joke that Buckin tells?
2: No, oh, that's He he uh like I said, he runs into the road repairman who kind of puts him up for about a week because uh, Hannah actually gets pretty severely injured in the book uh, and has to like lie low for about a week to to recover. Uh, but he never runs across a couple like this. At least not that I can remember. He bounces around from house to house in the Highlands for a while. But uh, this this kind of takes a couple of ideas from the novel and puts a pretty and twist on it.
0: Do you think Bucken would have told the dour, miserly, <laughs> Scottish cuckold joke? I mean, that sounds a little on the nose, given that he's super Scottish yeah, and I, loves it. Yeah, I, I think
2: this is a Cockney having some fun at Buchan's expense.
0: Okay, okay. Uh I appreciate what you said earlier Todd about viewing um, Hannay and Pamela as as a pair. Um, I like Richard Hannay I think he's uh, I, I, I think he's a good character but uh, and, and, and the, the performance is the performance is excellent believable throughout I think but um, I don't really like him so much as I do. When he is literally chained to Pamela, um, <laughs> it's like attach a woman to him, and all of a sudden he's he's just he's just funny, he's witty, and I, I've tried to figure out you know what exactly is going on here, man. You're still being you know pursued by death, and the woman you're chained to thinks you're a murderer. Um, but it's as if you handcuff this guy to a pretty woman and he can't not be charming. <laughs> right? So even as he's forcing her to run across the highlands and and in a lot of cases, you know, forcibly restraining her from calling for help. I mean, from her perspective, that's, I mean, it, it's a horrifying moment. I mean, we see it from his because we've been with him the whole time. But, I mean, looked at from her perspective, this is, I mean, this is desperate. But, uh he, nonetheless you know he'll 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 physically restrain her from screaming and then offer her the hanker- her hanker his handkerchief <laughs>
2: right. chivalry is not dead
0: yeah yeah it's uh i i i really love their chemistry and their repartee and uh the fact that this is uh something that's absolutely not from the book and so and mm. and and is uh Coming from Hitchcock, or at least Hitchcock's collaboration with uh the screenwriter
1: uh, well, in his production of of something of a familiarity between the actor and actress there is you know um, well documented right i mean you you've heard the story perhaps or perhaps not that um he had them handcuffed, and they did a scene. And then he pretended to have lost the key, <laughs> so and so they had to spend the good part of a day handcuffed together, and that is excellent. in plenty of idle time, uh, sitting. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I get this from the actress. Um, she she writes that they, well, you know, that we we eventually um, got to talking about family and common interests and whatever, and 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 uh, you know. I, I, I wonder whether some of the chemistry that you see there <laughs> has come about by this rather rude uh, trick of, of, of Hitchcock's, but uh, he's known for that, too, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah, yeah, sometimes to the point of utter cruelty.
1: S- some a little worse than this, yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. Anything, anything else that you would want to point out, Jordan? performances performance-wise uh,
1: i think i agree
2: with everything y'all pointed out i, I think this i think one one thing i would want to point out about the spy with the missing pinky uh he has very few scenes uh in order to make the impression that he does and that's that's a skill that i've learned to really appreciate in actors who can make a big impression with uh he's in what Maybe two, maybe three scenes.
1: It's one long scene mm-hmm. and then, then a he's just, very brief one later on. And then at the very yeah, end, he's just he's skulking just in the booth in the at the
2: theater. Right. Uh, yeah. He makes a really good impression. I've already said enough about the undies salesman. Uh, I really <laughs> I, I really love the Scottish couple too. Uh, I, I will push back maybe a little bit. It's not a, I, I think that uh, that is one of the scenes where you really see Hitchcock's silent film influence coming out. Because you could turn the sound Ooh, off in yeah. that scene. And still yep. absolutely know what's going on because uh, all the, the dialogue is just the guy praying over the food and everything is told in looks in, you know, the kind of voyeuristic view through the window. Uh, so, True. so expanding on that, I think would maybe wreck it a little bit. So I want, I want more yeah. out of that couple, but it, I guess it's better to want more than to have too much. That's a fair point. Um, yeah, that's fair. Point. And I think all the, I think all the variety of kind of heavy set detectives are uh they're they're sort of stock characters, but they they feel like <laughs> stocky characters. Yeah, they, they they do feel like they could catch Hane, you know, which uh, which I appreciate. Yeah. It's it's pretty thankless, but uh, I I don't think the movie would work as well without them.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that you uh, you brought up the the silent film connection, because um, uh, when you when you when you mentioned that earlier, Todd about him working with Murnau and uh, and learning how to tell a story without words um it, I, I think you do pay attention to parts of this uh, film differently if you if you look at them from those perspective and i and i, w- I was thinking of several uh, uh a few different scenes where there is no dialogue or very little dialogue and everything is happening in a face and in a gesture and in a stance um yeah the, the, well,
1: when when she wakes up and and pulls herself out of the handcuff.
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: That that's that's like a two minute scene with nothing, and right, you know, is perfect.
0: Yeah, when she's uh, getting her stockings down and she almost uh, drops what what whatever <laughs> the
1: stocking scene, I forgot about that one too, but we'll, uh, I'll mention it later. But go.
0: <laughs> yeah, she kept she she catches that weight, mm-hmm. you know, before it hits the ground, and you know, yeah, like. From her perspective, for a moment there, she almost alerted the murderer on the bed that she was about to leave. Like, there's a lot of tension in that little moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Very, very cool. Well, most of Hitchcock's career lies in the wake of the 39 steps. So, Jordan um, and Todd, please augment this. I I am sparse and definitely unsystematic in my knowledge of, of, of Hitchcock's canon. So uh, do you see bits in this film that hint forward to later movies?
2: Uh, I think definitely. Uh, I just jotted down a few things before we started recording. Um, I think uh, you see prototypes here of a lot of his kind of male-female relationships. Uh, the, the, the phrase I typed out was affectionately antagonistic. Um, kind of hinting <laughs> at the charm you are talking about, so look yeah. at like Jimmy Stewart and uh not not Kim Novak, but the girl who he always hangs out with in vertigo um where they're okay. kinda of, you know she's clearly interested in him, he's not uh but they kind of have this like back and forth repartee that you know is sometimes barbed most of the time kind of brotherly sisterly, you know uh, I think you see a lot of that when there's not direct romantic interest. I think that's kind of the the default that Hitchcock goes to, this kind of jocularity between men and women. Um, th- there's definitely that Hitchcockian sense of humor, which is pretty wry and um, uh, surprisingly off-color for 1935, like we've talked about. Um, yeah. Uh, the, to me, though, the strongest elements that that, that seem Hitchcockian to me, uh, technically, his use of POV, or point of view, uh, that's like he's he's kind of the textbook example. You see a character walk into a room, we see them see something, we see what they see, we see their reaction, right? And that that is itself a silent film technique pioneered by, you know, people like Sergei Eisenstein. Uh he's really really good at it. So just just rewatch the scene when he discovers the woman murdered in his apartment and you get loads of that as he's checking the windows, he's looking at the guys outside. Uh, and of course that brings in a lot of other the a lot of the other skills Hitchcock has with, you know, using windows and doors to kind of frame and separate the viewer and what they're looking at, stuff like that. Um, Something that only occurred to me last night was Hitchcock's really powerful sense of place. Um, This is definitely Cockney, London, definitely the Scottish Highlands. It's got really nice location photography, which you don't get a lot of in 1930s movies. Um, I mean, I just wrote a blog post um, on my website about Sergeant York, uh, and that's, of course, an American movie, but it's clearly shot in California. Um, they they clearly took a film crew and, you know, the actors up to the highlands and shot a lot of really good scenic outdoor stuff for this. Um, and one of the things I appreciate about Hitchcock is that his movies don't take place in, like, anonymous urban spaces. Uh, they take place in specific right. locations. And, and uh, again, Vertigo is a really great example of that. Um, uh, we, could, we could probably name others. Uh, then, I again, as well, uh, so I've got the point of view, that sense of place, uh, which Hitchcock is always attentive to, which I appreciate. Uh, just that particular kind of hero. Uh, to me, Donat's Hanay, like I've said, is sort of a prototype for especially Cary Grant. Um, so I remember the first time I watched this, I actually wondered what Cary Grant would have done with the role. Uh, having seen it several yeah. times since, I really appreciate Donat for what he's doing. But I, it's still, having seen, you know... Uh, to catch a thief, and uh, uh, what's uh, yeah, North yeah. by Northwest, and and you know, which is also about a guy who was is minding his own business and gets stuck in somebody else's plot. Um, I, I really. by an airplane. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Minussed. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's fil- there great filmmakers can make the same film over and over again, and you don't notice. Um, I, I really definitely see at, le- at least the Cary Grant type protagonist, um, pretty powerfully. Realized here, um, which I think is the the sign of a master at work that they can kind of take something they're interested in and produce a more or less fully formed version of it the first try. Uh, Todd, what do you got?
1: Well, so um, and Ella and I and I'm, I look both at at Hitchcockian tropes, but also things that make their way into other other films beyond. Um, the double chase, the being chased by one party and chase, while you're chasing someone else, that uh, that occurs. The wrong man, mm. of course, is in so many of his films, right? And I, too, was going to mention North by Northwest because it is a retelling of this story. I mean, there's not – even down to the plane scene, right, with the plane chasing him right, in – right. in, in, uh uh which <laughs> all right, that's one, one area where Hitchcock might have done better because that was a model plane. <laughs> 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 or a or a gyro what do they call that? Auto gyro like Oh in the thirty
2: nine steps is? a gyrocopter?
1: Yeah, yeah. A gyro yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So um but one 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 thing I actually too, since you mentioned um the sense of place that that uh that Hitchcock has, I mean it is very important for him to place his story in a particular location. So you do get all the great scenes in London proper and the Highlands too. Um, it was the 39 steps was not the first um, uh, of. Um, Buckens novels that they were, that, that he and Bennett were going to do. I mean, they were going to do green mantle, um, but they decided it was going to be too expensive because they would have to go to the middle East. Right. Um, right. In order to do it, to, to, to do it justice. Um, the other thing I, I, I also wanted to mention, and I just I'm, I'm more interested in what you guys think about this, but when I see couples like the two in this film, I immediately think of Tracy and Hepburn, and and the sort of interplay between um, again I don't remember what did you call it uh, antagonistic uh, uh,
2: affectionate antagonism
1: uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> But that's exactly what you got, right? I mean that, that you know Tracy Hepburn films are exactly that. and and I don't know whether there's any kind of um, connection with that kind of idea because you really don't outside of uh, these early films of Hitchcock, you don't at least I'm not, I'm unaware of that kind of interplay between man and woman. I mean that really plays throughout Hitchcock's films. Um, I don't know if he's not the originator. I,
0: the the closest comparisons that that I could think of that are that are, I I guess fairly close in time. I would have to you know kind of look them up, but um, William Powell and Myrna Loy's um, Thin Man movies, um, ha, have a lot of have a lot of repartee uh, that, a lot, a lot of kind of repartee and, and really it, it goes back to much ado, right? Much ado about nothing. Oh yeah. Um, that that yeah that that. loving hating each other um
1: right so we blame it on shakespeare yet again (laughs) all right yeah
0: i mean right right um Uh, And john wayne i mean
1: there's john wayne too in um what's the one with the irish woman
0: oh this is interesting um and i just looked it up dear listeners i've Uh, totally forgotten the the thin man with William Powell and, uh, William Powell and Murloy came out in
2: 1934. Hmm.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, there, there may also be, uh, some, uh, you know, Hitchcock is, a, is, is an incredibly, uh, creative and independent thinker, but I think he's also someone who's, you know, paying attention to the, uh, the waves of public interest, mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, you know, he he he's he's the guy who sees what the next kind of thing is, and so the different phases of his career are canny, and he stays being successful because he's not he's not the guy who can only make one kind of movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know maybe maybe he's making a move like that, but I, yeah. I don't know enough of the enough of the backdrop um, hmm. of the, the creative process going into this. Well, gentlemen, I have been steering this conversation so far, and so we've talked about the stuff I'm most interested in, but uh, what are some other points that you'd like to make about 39 Steps? Todd?
1: Well, so I'm probably going to make what's the obvious point, or an obvious point, and that is I what I really appreciate about this film, and we have already sort of touched on this, um, but let's touch on it some more. Um, is is just the laugh out loud funny moments? I mean, I, I I so much appreciate the the fact that he is doing something in a uh, he's doing suspense. He's doing. I mean, and it's not light hearted. Uh, it's not light hearted subject matter that we're dealing with, especially in this film if you think about the international angle but he's so darn funny i mean you know i i I was sketching down a a few lines just just that made me laugh with and sometimes it's in a point in the movie which where laughter is not really where you want to be going um a whole a whole flock of detectives i that phrase i don't know why but that just that that made me laugh but i mean the The best of them is, is for me anyway, and you guys will probably come up with better, there are 20 million women on this island and I've got to be chained to you. (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, The stocking scene, you know, where they're handcuffed together and she has to take off her wet stockings. Um, is just is absolutely belly laugh time. I mean, for me, anyway. Um, so for me, it's the humor. It is absolutely the, the use of humor. The salesman, uh, we've already talked about too much. Um, you know, I, I, I think it is uh, the mark of a great filmmaker where you are able to bring those elements in in a way that's not distracting to what's going on. But is instead something that just enriches the whole experience.
0: Like that. Jordan?
2: Uh, I have to agree. Um, I I can't really think of much that I've not already said five times. Uh, um, (laughs) You know, to go back to the underwear salesman, for instance. Uh, But I I think maybe another (laughs) aspect of the humor that I really appreciate, um, you know, in the last few years, especially with all the Marvel movies. Uh, we've seen a particular brand of humor brought in that you know relies really heavily on kind of again a self-awareness and you know quick quips and one-liners and zingers uh, but H- um, Hitchcock manages to do all of that without undercutting the tension um, where as much as I oh, enjoy yeah, yeah. guardians of the galaxy it it almost feels like a crutch like the filmmakers are now so self-aware that they can't trust themselves to be sincerely emotional or sincerely dramatic or sincerely suspenseful without undercutting it in some way. Um, And Hitchcock never does that. It's hilariously funny and it's supremely suspenseful at the same time uh, without either of those things getting in each other's way. And uh, I wouldn't mind a little bit more of that.
0: That's really cool. I mean, I I know this was uh, as we head for the exit question, but you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, Hannay's Madame Tussauds story about you know where where you <laughs> yes. find his ancestors in Madame Tussauds, um, which is so funny yeah. and so witty. But you never lose consciousness of the fact that he is chained to a woman who thinks he's who thinks he's a murderer, and she's he's amusing her with light repartee to ke- to, to keep her distracted and also to lull her to sleep so that she won't be a problem. Right. Hmm. Right? And like the, the humor is a tactic of the character mm-hmm. to deal with the problem in the moment. It's not just funny. Um, it's it's also doing a purpose. No, I really is like that.
1: that. Is, is the scene where she... He, he's just... He's going and going and going and going and she finally turns away because she's about to laugh. Is that on the bed? I... I I think I think that might be on the bed because I, th- I I just remember that was one of those moments where it's like oh my gosh this is really good. <laughs> yeah, know?
0: she's get um, he's getting to her, and it, and and yeah. it's 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 kind of it's it's kind of cute. Mm-hmm. Like you you start to, like she she likes him, she really likes him.
2: And, and that, makes it, <laughs> that makes it believable when she decides to help him later. Right, right. sure. It's not right. this like out of nowhere about face.
0: Right, because she immediately goes not from, uh, not from, I can't believe, you know, oh my gosh, this murderer has been captured to enormous relief. It goes straight into affection.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? She comes back in that room and she just, she just looks at him sweetly and she covers it up with a blanket. <laughs> and yeah, she here. takes it away later because she's cold, but.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Very true to life, though. Very true yes. to life, I must say. Uh, yeah, I, I have
2: uh, to say I gave my wife a hard time about that.
1: What a man won't do.
0: Well, gentlemen, I have a feeling that we could probably just keep on talking about this until until the cows come home, (laughs) or kingdom comes, or the sheep, or whatever. The detectives,
2: (laughs) the 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 coos, in uh,
0: (laughs) but all good things must come to an end, and so must this. Well dear listeners, uh, we all uh, all three of us advise you, go watch the 39 steps. You can do it for free. It's on YouTube. What the heck? Try it out. Um, Buckan is also in the public domain. so if uh, our discussion of the novel and, and that and that author uh, has appealed to you, that's that's also something you can file that find out there for free. Uh, In the meantime, be listening for the Christian Humanist podcast to return back to its regularly scheduled programming, which, gosh, I don't know what it's going to be because we don't record these in sequence when we're doing the crossover. (laughs) (laughs) In the meanwhile, I wish you all the grandest of weeks. The Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist radio network. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Our press liaison is Kristen Filipic. And on behalf of Todd Pedler and Jordan Poss, I say, Clear out, Hannay, they'll get you next.